Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heap, the political editor at Politico Europe, and what a fascinating little week this has been so far. Coming up in this episode, we're going to hear a slice of that via a debate between Sandro Gozzi. He's an en marche MEP candidate in France, who is also a former Europe affairs minister in Italy, and Anders Vistesen, the Danish People's Party Eurosceptic MEP. Gotzi will argue the case for the EU, and Vistesen the case against the EU. But before we go there, let's recap the week's three main political developments in Europe. First, we kick-started the week with Matteo Salvini, Italy's Deputy Prime Minister, launching a new Eurosceptic alliance. He hopes that will become one of the biggest party groups in the European Parliament after elections in May. In reality, it's a sort of new group. The majority of its MPs will come from Italy's League and France's National Rally. They already work together. And only a few new members are going to come from the new parties, True Finns and Danish People's Party. Right after the Salvini news, we had the EU getting tougher on China. The EU complains China isn't living up to its trade commitments on market access, for example. But the EU and China then paired up at a summit to have a go at Donald Trump by talking up the importance of a rules-based and multilateral trade system. The two sides claimed it was a win-win summit, and that means the loser was Trump. But the other really big disruptive factor of the political week has been the UK winning a Brexit deadline extension from EU leaders Thursday morning. That means many things, but first of all, the UK is now set to participate in the European Parliament elections in May. That in turn means socialists will do better than they were expecting in the election. It was headed to be a wipeout for them. Now they're going to have a net gain of about 20 seats thanks to UK Labour participating. It also means a bunch of countries, including Spain, France and Ireland, will have fewer seats in the Parliament than they were expecting, because Parliament will, at least temporarily, revert to its pre-Brexit seat distribution plan. But most of all, it means that the UK is now either more likely to sign up to be a part of the EU's customs union, which means it won't be able to do its own trade deals, but it would be able to control its borders against EU migrant arrivals, or they could end up holding a second Brexit referendum or a UK general election to determine the way forward, given that Parliament hates the current Brexit deal so much, and they don't like any of the other options either. Whatever happens, the EU has said firmly to the UK, it's up to you to sort this out. The EU has refused to be the party that pushes the UK out. There's one exception to that. If for some reason the UK was still an EU member in late May, but failed to hold European Parliament elections, it would get the boot immediately on June 1st. 
Next up, the debate between En Marche candidate Sandro Gozzi and the Danish MEP Anders Vistesen. Now we're just going straight to the heart of what a lot of people want to know, which is how strong the Eurosceptics are going to be. If there's one thing people ask me as an outsider or as a non-EU expert, they want to know, are the Eurosceptics taking over? So let's be contrary and start with you first, Sandro. You're the president of the Union of European Federalists. You wrote a book called Generation Erasmus. So lay it out for us in 60 seconds. Why do we need more Europe? We need more Europe because the world has changed and because there are so many transnational issues about which uh, national policies and national politics is totally powerless. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons of the crisis of national democracy and politics. And we need to develop a new uh, governance at European level on transnational issues such as migration, fight against climate change, ruling on digital agents, ruling on global finance. It's clear that either we do it better and in a more effective and more democratic way at European level, or we let uh, our competitors over the ocean or toward the Far East decide it for us. This is, uh, for me, the basic reason why we need a European reform. Anders, you also wrote a book, and if I've got the English translation right, it comes across as The Great EU Deception, The Media Concealments and Distortions. So tell us, why do you think the EU needs to shrink or go away? And maybe you disagree with Sandro's characterization that nations are completely powerless on some of these issues. I think my primary point is that we have to treat Brexit as the symptom, not the illness. The illness is still here in Brussels. What led to Brexit had not been handled. And what I have described as a deceit has been Europe's inability to be forward with its people. For instance, let's take something like the Euro construction. Even the founding fathers of the Euro construction knew that it was not going to be a survivable construct. They knew that we needed two-pack, six-pack, possibly euro bonds, a lot of other institutional things to make a common currency work, and a euro budget, and a European finance minister. But we just implemented the currency and hope nobody took notice of that. And now we are seeing the consequences with a much harder recession in Europe than we for instance saw in the US. I could also mention the Schengen border free area. We are now in the Libre Committee, year after year, repairing fundamental errors from, if you want an, an external border, if you want to abolish the internal borders, you need to have the external borders. But just something like PNR took five, six years to get through Parliament, even though we gave the Canadians, the Americans the same information. Even simple things like an entry-exit system for Schengen passport holders is something we just come about to do now. And at least 10,000 new border guards that we've been promised by younger State of the Union, you know, I was one of the shadows on that file, and I don't think that the result that has come out of that file is going to give the Europeans the security that they think, if they heard younger, they would get from it. You hit on something, I've got a follow-up for you there, where you are actively involved in legislative files, and I'll be honest, a lot of the more Eurosceptic members of Parliament, they're not. They don't often turn up and do their actual job. So now that you're joining this new block with Salvini, do you think that's going to be a watershed after this election, that there'll be more Eurosceptics who are actually going to turn up and do their legislating jobs? 
I think we've seen change in some of these parties. First of all, some of them have went into government, which I think is a good disciplinating exercise. So uh, if you hold government positions, let's say in Austria, let's say in, in Italy, you, you start to... It, it's a transformation process for, for any new party going into government. The other thing is that, that I've seen more and more of the, um, the patriotic national conservative movements around Europe reapproaching their, their stance in Europe, saying we have to reform it from within. So you can maybe not do as Nigel have done so eloquently, give uh, big speeches in the European Parliament, be a big media person, but not really showing anything, delivering anything for the voters on the everyday things. And of course, we should not lose sight of the reformation of Europe that we want to have. But I think at least my voters in Denmark insist that I try to make the world a better place, even though I'm not going to re- revolutionize it tomorrow. So I'm, I'm jokingly saying I'm only electable for things that I want to change. I was elected in the Danish regions. I want to abolish them. And now I'm here in the European Parliament. Probably don't want to abolish it, but I want to reform it. Sandro, first of all, any response there to Anders? And second, isn't he right that the EU does continually fail to connect with citizens? Isn't that a fundamental problem with this idea of more integration? I'm surprised to take Brexit as an example because Brexit is exactly the example of a disaster to which the policies of people like Salvini or Le Pen, which are under Elias, will, uh, will bring. Because I would like to remind to this audience that uh, on the 24th of June 2016, Beppe Grillo, Matteo Salvini and Marine Le Pen said repeatedly how great is Brexit and they propose Italy exit and Frexit. So if you want to know what the nationalists are going to do tomorrow, remember what they said yesterday. And don't trust what their ambiguous speech they will, take, they will follow now in the European election, only because they see which mess is Brexit. And by the way, they're messing up also today, but if you want, we come back on that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if there is an example of the disaster to which nationalistic policies bring, Take Brexit is a perfect, based on fake news, based on 300 million to NHS each week. This is exactly the propaganda with Marie Le Pen, with Matteo Salvini. Good luck in your group, uh, in their group with these people, Anders. This is the way they will handle things at national level and at European level. Remind this. On the rest, it is clear. To me, the European Union can reconnect better with its citizens if it is an efficient and democratic problem solver. And I insist there are on certain issues on which only the European Union can be a problem solver. The issue is how to make it more effective mm-hmm. and how to make it more democratic. This is a fundamental point. So how are we going to do it then? Is it something like a constitutional convention? Because it strikes me that whatever side of the argument you're on, there's a lot of people now who are not happy with the status quo. Do we actually need to go through that process like in 2002 and 3 and try and redraw the whole frame of the union? The status quo is the best ally of the nationalists. So, I mean, even the so-called pro-European parties and even the so-called pro-European leaders, which for a decade they have postponed to tomorrow difficult, important decisions because it was never the moment, these policies, which is a very shy policy, which is a very short-sighted policy, has been the real fuel in the engine of the nationalists. If uh, they listen to the person who is speaking to you now and to his Prime Minister Matteo Renzi in 2014, the leaders here, uh, when we were saying migration is a European problem, it's not a Greek and Italian problem, if uh, we were uh, heard in 2014, probably we have taken away some horse battle to uh, the nationalists. So, I mean, the status quo and the defender of the status quo and the very cautious leaders that they say it is never the moment, 
they are the best ally of the nationalists. We need a fundamental reform. Now, is Angela Merkel your best ally? No, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't thought about it that way before. You know, being a Dane, we have the unofficial world record in referendums on the European Union. And that is not because the Danish politicians like it any more than any other European politicians. It's just because we have a constitution that demands it. But I can't help to wonder a little that all of these very sort of pro-Europe politicians, every time we've seen referendums been held in member states, we have seen no's. We've seen no's in Ireland, we've seen them in the UK, we've seen them in Denmark, we've seen them in Sweden, we've seen them in the Netherlands, we've seen them in France, we've seen them in Hungary. And at some point, you must stop up and ask, are we as politicians wrong, or is it the people who get it wrong? And I actually applaud people like my good friend and colleague here, who passionately defend the European ideal. And I agree with him in one of his points that the mainstream politicians of the SND and the EPP too often don't want to defend their European ideas to the public and just go to Brussels and make them come through in a little bit subvert way. They don't do the public debate. They don't go out and defend them. So I actually think it's a more honest debate when you have people like me who has a skeptical approach and people who really want to defend them. But every time I, for instance, mention Mr. Verhofstadt to my liberal colleagues in Denmark, they would rather be seen with the devil than be compared to Mr. Verhofstadt. And I think this is a shame because if, you, if they want him as a leader, they should, you know, they should defend their ideals. And that, I think, is one of the problems with the European debate, at least in my country, I think also in other countries, that is that have it honestly, then. I can't but accept... if you can't have it honestly in your country with all these referendums, how is it possible to have it honestly? I think it's about the foundation of democracy. I think democracy demands a public sphere and a demos, a people. And even though we have these great events here in the Brussels bubble and we have many nationalities here, let's be honest, it's not a thing that the majority of the Danes or the French or the Italians are going to watch tonight. And I think that's one of the problems with having an honest debate, that is that for large cultural reasons, you cannot really have a true European narrative and a true European debate. It is sacramented into different spheres, national mm -hmm. states, and even in some member states, for instance, the one we are living in now, maybe into two or three different debates. Well, maybe there's a third way. Sandro, you've previously supported a two-speed Europe back in 2015. Are you still supporting that as a way forward? And, and then, Anders, you can respond and let us know if that would sort of reduce some of your concerns about the EU, if you could be in that slow lane. Yeah, first of all, let me remind that there has been a, around Europe since the beginning of our European process, if I'm not mistaken, 46 or 47 referenda. And the vast majority of the referendums said yes to Europe. So to say that each time the people are asked to vote on Europe in a referendum, they vote no, it is the historical false assumption. But certainly we need to more, and on, yeah, agree with, I agree with Anders, we need more open debate. To me, Brussels is one European city. I don't see this obsession about Brussels. I mean, it's one capital, there are other capitals. I really don't understand why we have to use Brussels permanently as a scapegoat. It's one of the capital of our union. Yes, I am for the Europe of the political free will. So I think that there is a group of peoples and governments and countries who want to deepen their integration, they should do so, uh, without obliging uh, all the others to follow along that path, but without accepting that anybody can veto them. I think that this is uh, the best, most democratic, most transparent way for those who want to achieve their objectives and for those who are perfectly happy with the single market, they can remain perfectly happy in the single market. On only one thing, I don't think that can be more than one speed. It is a respect of rule of law and fundamental rights. On that, there aren't two, three or four speed. 
there is only one speed because there is something which is common to all our, our Europeans since the very beginning. If there is a one European identity, it is respect of rule of law and fundamental rights. Mm -hmm. So on that, uh, no compromise is possible because it's the heart of our union. Anders, can you sign up to that or how would you tweak that vision? It depends if it's truly, first of all, we have multi-speed Europe. We have countries with opt-outs, mine is one of them, UK is another, Ireland is a third, but even like the Czech Republic is not part of the Charter of Fundamental Rights, they got the opt-out for that and so on and so forth. So that's already the reality. And I think one of the reasons that Danes are a little bit more happy with their membership of the European Union is because they are protected from some of the things that they would see as bad things, like for instance, the Eurozone, for instance, the common justice and home affairs and migration policies of Europe. I think that makes many Danes happy that they are primarily seeing it as a market project, an economical project that doesn't necessarily need to have these other political layers to it. So if we respect that that can truly be the case, that just because someone goes ahead, others are not forced to follow in one or two or five or ten years, as it have been in a way in the past where, for instance, new membership countries had to adopt the Eurozone, for instance. Then I think it could be a very good way to respect that some people want a deeper union and respect that other countries, for cultural reasons or other reasons, would prefer a less integration. So you've got a new, a new potential majority. Yeah, there we go. Look yeah. at that. But now I'm going to make you each step out of your shoes and think like the other one for a second. Sandro, what's the thing you like least about the EU? I think that the, the red tape... That's and the, that's quite the obsolescence of, well, I mean, what can I say otherwise? Or maybe you'd put sunset clauses on regulation. Is that something I you'd think I think that about? the fact that what we do is uh, open to a very fast obsolescence. Obsolescence, And we yeah. should find a way of being uh, updating us and keep the path with digital revolution, innovation more quick. At least uh, it would be something very much welcomed by citizens and firms. Mm -hmm. And we haven't found out the way. Anders, what's your favourite part of the EU? My favourite part is, um, I think, what most Danes thought they voted on. That's the common market, and that's the idea of a free trade bloc, like an alter trade, not only with ourselves, but also reach out to other parts of the world. Coming from a very small open economy, it's very important for us that we have a market to interact with, and we also open up that market to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And that is also why I think one of the downsides I mean, many downsides of Brexit is that we will probably see a bit more protectionism. And I'm very unhappy, for instance, in this mandate that the TTIP negotiations have been going in the way they have been. And I think we Europeans tend to forget that even before the election of Mr. Trump, very prominent members of government in both France and Germany had been out and, and speaking against the TTIP agreement. So we have a problem on the free trade agenda, not only in the US, but also here in Europe. Mm -hmm. So if we talk about how you build new majorities for change somehow, if you take... Anders point that he thinks the single market is the thing people could agree on. Sandra, what would you suggest needs to happen around the fact that the single market basically doesn't exist in three quarters of the economy, which is the services sector? Well, I mean, I think that we have two big priorities and one uh, evergreen. The evergreen is the issue of services, as you say, where even major economies have been very resistant to open and to build up a real single market. The two big priorities, which were a priority also in 2014, I remember the program of our presidency at the beginning of this legislature, energy and digital. And on energy and digital, we have wasted time, we have been too slow, and that is, must be uh, the two of the utmost priorities in the new term. On free trade agreement, Anders, I think that you have to deepen the discussion with Matteo Salvini and Marie Le Pen, because I'm not sure that they will agree <laughs> with what you just said. 
I can see some of your point. I'm not saying I'm not saying that Matteo and Salvini, uh, Matteo and Marine will agree with you. But that's basically the point, and I'm, I think it's a bit funny because now I've been in the European Parliament for five years. I've been working as a staffer for two years, and sometimes my pro-European colleagues always say, "Oh, oh you're always disagreeing so much." If I talk to my social democratic colleagues from Denmark, who are also good free traders, I could also remind them about a lot of their colleagues who have a different opinion. Mm -hmm. When I want to fight social dumping, for instance in the transportation sector, I can also disagree a lot with my Eastern European colleagues, but we will still be colleagues um, the day after because we share other political points. But this idea, and I think that's sometimes the difference, that is that I accept that Europe is so diverse that you cannot really, even if you take the same ideological stream, put everything into the same box. And you will see disagreements, east and west and north and south, in all political groups. And I think also, without predicting where you are going to end up in, in a new group, uh, we're waiting for you, no? We came out, now we're waiting for you. But whether you're making a new group or you're joining Alda or you're doing something third, I would also be very happy to see how much, um, if, if you can agree on all issues, all time, I'm not sure that's going to happen either. Let me challenge you on one of Sandro's original points, Anders, where he was saying there are just some issues you can only deal with in a cross-border way. Mm. Things like migration and climate change. So let's take migration. That's not really the single market. There's a bit of overlap, but it's not really the single market. How on earth is less Europe going to help Danes be protected? How can you have that external border if there's not more Europe to make it happen? First of all, I think many people in Brussels ought to look into what happened in migration crisis. And is that really European solutions? The Turkey deal was brokered between a national leader, Angela Merkel, and Erdogan. It was the Hungarians who decided very unilaterally to reintroduce border controls, and that tripled up all the way that we now have, which is quite new between Denmark and Sweden, border controls again. And, um, but if you had a proper European plan, it wouldn't be no, up to individual I, bilateral action, would Of it? course, because if I was a European dictator or, or had the vast majority, we could easily find European <laughs> solutions for everything. Because oh, then no. it would be the right solution. All right, okay. I'm not sure where we're going with that one. <laughs> but step by jump in, because Sandra. there isn't a European dictator. You're saying oh, that's good. Because no, no, when I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I hear some of your lives speaking, uh, it <laughs> sounds like if there was a European dictator. I think um, that's a nice go-to. But if we are living in the real world, it's meaningless to talk about a European solution because a solution can only be judged on the content of what's in it. So if what's on the table, and I think what's on the table from the Commission, and especially from the Parliament, is a horrible solution to the migration problem, then of course I'm not in favour of Europeanising it. If there was, for instance, a majority of European leaders and European Parliament who wanted to work for implementing a version of the Australian model, I would think it would be a good solution. We don't have that already? No, not at all, because the Australian model is based on the premise that you will be returned, and therefore we will hinder the human smuggling, and we will stop the suffering of people dying in the Mediterranean Sea and in the deserts coming up. So no, but what we're, we're returning now, people effectively to Libya now, often to appalling conditions. Uh, you need to do it like the Australians are doing it, in a complete uniform way, because otherwise it doesn't have effects. It's, it's like you cannot be half pregnant, you cannot have half an Australian model. But the solution on the table right now is clearly a non-solution. The solution now is just to be fired about people that, if we should be honest for a moment, nobody wants. The Southern Europeans say they want a European solution that is just to divide them into Northern Europe and Eastern Europe. The Northern Europeans say, oh, they come here anyway, but we don't want any more. And the Eastern Europeans say, we have seen the lessons from what you guys did. We don't want to repeat it. Mm -hmm. So I beg you to come up to a European solution when you have that happening. It will not happen. Mm -hmm. The only real solution is to be honest and say there is no appetite anywhere in Europe to receive illegal migrants in the numbers that are coming. 
Now, Sandro, I'm Australian, so I know that Australian model pretty well. If there's one thing that it does that I could agree with as being effective, it's that it does stop people drowning. If we were to implement more of that policy in Europe, is that a bad example of more Europe, or are all examples of more Europe good? To say that, uh, I mean, Europe doesn't want migration, it's like if I was complaining because I wish that Brussels is always sunny. I mean, yes, but sometimes it rains. And when it rains, what do you do? You say, well, it should be sunny? or you take an umbrella and you, ma- you handle with rain. Migration is a, a phenomenon which will be there. I mean, Salvini can do propaganda and say it closes ports. It's not true. It's, the ports are not closed in Italy, but he's saying that. We can say we don't want one single migrant. We, say, we can say we don't want European approaches. We can say we want only national politics. The issue is how we take back control. And from this perspective, I envy a lot Michael Gove and Boris Johnson's slogan, because let's take back control, which was the Brexit slogan. It is the very right question. The problem for the Brits, the wrong answer, because you cannot take back control going back to nationalistic policies to handle issues such as migration. When migration, either we develop a common European approach, which is manifold, which is based on a new relation with Africa, including return agreements, to take a part of the Australian model, which is based on common border police, was a proposal of the Italian president in 2014, which is now has been agreed, it took five years, and it's, it's going to be implemented in many years. We have to be more faster in implementing this decision. And then, of course, to develop a real common approach to asylum, if we want to keep uh, our freedoms. And to me, the fact that we Europeans, in our in European space, we are free to move, we are free to study abroad, we are free to open a business everywhere we want, we are free to provide services, unless some obstacles. To me, the best gift that Europe has given to us, we have to preserve by taking back control mm-hmm. on issues such as migration. But, I mean, the new allies of funders, also on this, I mean, they do not agree on anything. How can you think that Marine Le Pen and Matteo Salvini would be effective in managing migration when Matteo Salvini says, I want to redistribute the migrants everywhere in Europe, and Marine Le Pen say not one single migrant in France, and Orban, which is uh, their secret dreams to have an allies, when uh, we ask him to take 700 refugees in a year, when in Lampedusa we had 10,000 migrants arriving every day, Orban say no, and we had to bring an action before the Court of Justice and violating mm-hmm. also from this perspective rule of law, yep. it implement this. Yep. Let's get on to I this. Mean, how, 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 how can they manage? Mm-hmm. How can they take back control but on this one, issue? One reply from you, Anders, and we'll get on to the question of allies. the facts, actually the redistribution would have taken migrants out of Hungary at that time. So one of the countries, including uh, together with Lampedusa and Greece, was actually Hungary. So Victor Orban stood on a point that he was against the redistribution. From a cost-benefit analysis, at the time, he would have had less migrants if he had implemented the plan. So maybe if we stay to the real world and the real arguments, that are that nobody wants them. And that's exactly the point I made before. And that is why the only realistic way to deal with illegal migration and to get more support for legal migration is to deal with it in a way where we end it. But then don't you need something like an EU-wide visa? You know, if I am someone who's looking for a front door rather than a back door into Europe, I have to be able to walk through a front door. And there isn't one at the moment a lot of the time. I think that the best way to do it is that the member states have the policies and then when you become a permanent resident, then you can obtain the rights to move around and then we can make common rules for that. I think that's the best way to ensure that people are coming for the right reasons. 
they are coming in an orderly fashion. And when they have settled down and they stay somewhere permanently, they start to become Europeanized and they get the European rights and obligations. But for instance, let's look into the transportation sector. We have seen work visas given in Poland amounting to people being paid down to three euros an hour driving lorries into Denmark. Okay, so we need to have to, a well-regulated yep. way of doing it. Let's get on to the question of allies now. You're obviously in the market for allies in this new group that Matteo Salvini announced earlier this week. Who are the targets? Would you accept Viktor Orban? And are you having discussions with Fidesz, for example, to bring him in? We are having a very broad discussion. and It's a very broad invitation we launched in Milan. So that's a yes. <laughs> you know, Viktor Orban is a little bit like the girlfriend in high school that you wanted but cannot get. Um, <laughs> To be honest, actually speechless. Um, <laughs> Viktor Orban is courted by the EPP, he's courted by the ECR, and he's also courted by everyone else, I think. To be honest, I don't think he's serious when he comes, it comes down to business about this. I think he will stay with his friends in the EPP group. That has been the inclination all through the time I've been in Brussels, and I think it will continue on. So, you know, it's not something that I waste a lot of sleep over and waste a lot of work on. What I will say is I think it's much more interesting what my current group is going to, how they are going to approach this, because it is an open invitation, and I think mm-hmm. it, they have been silly in the way they have been approaching both their enlargement and their future strategy, and I think they should come to their senses and start working together with people instead of excluding people. Mm-hmm. I think it comes from um, a bit of a British perception that you are a little bit better than the rest of the parties on this side of the spectrum, and to be honest, I think it's the wrong strategy. Because the truth is, if all the Eurosceptics united, you'd be the biggest party in Parliament, wouldn't you? At least we'll be in the competition. And I think the people who vote for these parties deserve the influence that goes with such a big fraction. And uh, as I said in Milan on Monday, the only one winning with the strategy that we have been following so far has been the people that want the opposite, who wants the United States of Europe. And to be honest, when I look into the other parliamentary groups, I could also find a lot of examples that would embarrass my Danish colleagues. And for some strange reason, no of my Danish colleagues have been out for me this week. And I think that's because they know that they don't want me to talk about, for instance, social democrats in Eastern Europe's approach to homosexuality. They don't want to talk about Mr. Babi's government in the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. They don't want me to talk about a lot of things. So the mm-hmm. truth is that there is a lot of things that divide in all the groups, and we can easily embarrass each other. But I think my voters deserve the most influence for the votes that they are casting for my party. Now let's get real, because on the question of allies, you're not each necessarily from those big groups in the parliament. But at the end of the day, if you're elected as MEPs, you're going to have to vote for somebody to become European Commission president. So Sandro, who amongst the candidates is the best candidate for a more Europe, European Commission? Well, I mean, let me say first that we are not chasing Orban as a ally and neither as a girlfriend. Okay, that so, was, I mean, that's, that's an easy point for you, <laughs> but now back to the hard on question. That, uh, Who on are you going to vote uh, for? I'm pretty sceptical on the uh, current system uh, of Spitzenkandidaten and in this yep. uh, political framework. And we can agree on that too, but at the end of the day, you'll have to vote for someone. But not necessarily one of those. Okay. Not an necessarily one of well, those. You can name someone now. Who, do you, who would you like to see? <laughs> Not necessarily one of those. I want to see what is the potential uh, candidate designated by the European Council who is able, he or she. Matteo Renzi, a, a, for able, example. No, no, no. Matteo Renzi is a good senator in Italy and is doing an excellent job in opposing the crazy government mm. of uh, Gilles Jeune, Matteo Di Maio. Is but I mean, Manfred I would like Vape? to see what is, who is the candidate who gets uh, okay, the vast okay, yeah, I was majority. looking for a name. You didn't give me one, so I'm moving on. Anders, is Manfred Weber the best candidate for a less Europe? 
Manfred Weber has a nasty habit of always saying unnice things about my party, so um, I would love to see him come crawling back and ask for my support. So it's sure if he comes to my office, I will have a chat with him. But I think the best commission president we could have in the next mandate would be someone who comes from a position in government, maybe someone with a long experience as a prime minister who has knowledge of real issues. And I will actually go with a liberal. I think a person like Mark Rutte would be mm -hmm. a, a good candidate. He's not going to agree with me on everything, but I think he has a more sensible approach to the European cooperation. Mr. Rasmussen in Denmark might need a job come July. Mr. As well. Rasmussen might need a job come July. Heltonic Schmidt might need a job. Margrethe Wester might need a job. We could have an entire Danish commission if you wanted it. But <laughs> there are already two extra names. In yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could, uh, you know, if, from them are two extra you, names. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted me, you know, I would also <laughs> go for it. But anyway, no, but seriously, speaking, I think you should go for a well-trusted leader, and I, I would say a profile like Mark Rutte, or like Anders Fogh Rasmussen, yeah. when he... Uh, oh, there's he, another one. Another but, Rasmussen. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like Weber cuts it in your eyes. I think the entire Spitzenkandidat thing was something the European Parliament did to boost our own morale, and now, where we know the EPP will win every time, the people who endorsed it last time is, is just crawling away from it. It's not very principled, it's a bit Europopulist, that, okay, if we don't win it, we don't want it. No. I think Weber is... No, 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 um, it's a very simple coherence factor that in 2014 it was the first attempt to introduce a better European democracy. Then we have proposed, I was the first to propose, to use the 73 Brexit seats to elect the women and men in transnational lists in one single European constituency. In this yeah. system... Now, there are with two the theories about why that didn't happen. With, with one the, of them is that the EPP was afraid, for example, that the Liberals had a bunch of star glamour candidates that they could do really well in that transnational <laughs> list and kind of have a backdoor claim on the Commission presidency. And then the other theory was they were basically worried Marine Le Pen would run that she'd win because the EPP and socialists have a bunch of stiffs and that they wouldn't attract any votes. Do you think either of those two reasons are true about why the transnational list was killed? I don't know if they are the true reason. They are both wrong. It never can be scared of democracy. Mm -hmm. And that would have been to double the, the democratic choice. You'd run in those transnational lists. <laughs> I would have loved to run uh, as number two after Mr. Salvini on the transnational list. And but that's you voted against. Because it's basically yeah, a constitutional crisis. You didn't think about yeah, that, but no, you no, voted against. Of course, I voted against because I stand with the point I made earlier that democracy need a publicity and they need a demos, they need a people. And therefore, trans-European lists will just be a beauty contest about the most contested, controversial politicians in Europe. And they would get all the attention. Yeah, it would isn't not every election a beauty contest? You know, then I would not get elected. I'm not that beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but this, all, all right. It's time for some all, questions all, 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 from the all, audience. Only, only on the inside, you know. Okay, okay. Uh, who's democracy. got a question? Sarah McCabe from the Irish Perm Rep. My question is, there was lots of talk about the faults of the EU and the reforms needed and the problems that led to Brexit. But what are your views on... the media portrayal of the problems of the EU and your scepticism among media in the UK and among media ownership and how much is a communication problem as opposed to actual structural problems? Sandra, you go first. Yes, yeah, certainly it is a media communication problem. I'm very critical of media, for example, in my country, but I think that uh, also it depends on those who are in politics, uh, live, present and defend uh, the European issues and the media would follow. In UK, all the political class have been doing EU bashing for years from Monday to Saturday. If you do EU bashing from Monday to Saturday before your citizens and on Sunday, like David Cameron did, ask to the citizens if they want to remain on the UK, 
it's very likely that the answer will be we want to leave. And I'm worried because this EU bashing is flourishing also in other European countries. Now, Anders, it is, is, our bad, is bad press coverage good journalism? Is it people just asking tough questions? Or are you in a bit of a conspiracy with some newspapers? I, I can hear that. You know, it's so easy to be Eurosceptic. We are so lofty in Brussels and everywhere else. You know, that's why we have such good elections. I think this is the complete conspiracy theory of why people don't understand Brexit or don't understand Trump. It's Russia. It's the media. It's not good enough. Let me take my own example of Denmark. All newspapers are declared pro-European. All institutions, Labour, employers, everyone is pro-European. Everyone would say vote yes, for instance, to leave the opt-outs. That is the uniform answer you'll get also well, from European experts. You had a referendum. Yeah, no, no, but, but I'm ago. talking about NGOs. Institutionally. All the institutional bodies, the vast majority of the politicians, the vast majority of employers' associations, labor associations, think tanks, European experts, all of them are more or less declared pro-Europeans. And despite of that, they tend to vote no when it comes to European referendums. So this idea that if just the Brits have had different media, and let's not say that there's also pro-European media in Britain. Actually, I think one of the beautiful things about the British media landscape is it's so diverse, but I think it's a, just an easy scapegoat not to take no, it seriously. No, 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 because you, no, it's the same, no I'm sorry, it it's the a, same thing you say all the time. No. And it's the same thing, it's the Russian bots. It's, Russian, it's, I never it's, spoke to about no, Russian. No, no, but... In this Brussels sentiment, Sandra's right of reply. I'm learning that Russia had an influence on the Italian consti- referendum constitution, that's what you're saying? You might be right. You might be right also that they tried to influence the French election. You might be right. You, you are saying that the Russian had an influence on the UK? I, no, I haven't said I, that. You said it. You I'm might be right. But I didn't say that. Scapegoating to the I, I same didn't say that. excuses I didn't say not that. to take the, the people answer, seriously. The question it's was... All the question, how rare it is to get an actual debate in Brussels. The question was whether the British media had a role in influencing the public opinion in the UK. I never spoke about conspiracy. I never spoke about plot. I never spoke about no, pro or anti-European press. It is a fact that in one of the most influential members of the European Union, such as UK, nobody or a tiny part of the ruling class has been effective in explaining the big advantages that UK is getting from the EU. And when you don't explain the big advantages, this is not a conspiracy, you get a boomerang effect. What it happened to UK, it is a boomerang effect. If they had been a little bit more honest in explaining how influential UK is in you, in my view, in my view, the result of the referendum would be different because it is not a matter of two months campaign. It is a matter of 20 years of approach. Yeah. And, but about the about the Russia, about about the Russia. We didn't go Russia. That was my fault. Let's skip Russia and Anders. You got it fine. The Russian is your problem because your Matteo Salvini leader has got a formal alliance with the Russian party of Putin. Your leader thinks that Putin is a reference. Your leader has got very strong political format. So that is your problem. It is not mine. So everything is linked to Russia. You, 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 will, deal it. you will deal it in the European Parliament. One final question to the two of you, speaking of uncomfortable allies here. But you both have to answer it. So, Sandro, you got to be on the soapbox there. But can you name one pro-EU ally that makes you uncomfortable? Who's the creepy uncle you don't want at the party? <laughs> To me, it's impossible to answer. Too much Europe is never enough. No, All right. no, no. To me, Anders, to me uh, I mean, your to the president of the European Federalism. Is, is Vladimir Putin one step too far for you? 
Of course. Or is there someone the, else? In, from a Danish perspective, Putin is way too far, but that is why I don't want a foreign affairs policy of Europe. That is so Denmark can stay with our transatlantic okay. allies, and Italy and France and Germany can be as pro-Russian, left, right and center, as you want to. You can sell your military ships there, you can buy their gas, and you can do all the trades with these countries that and you want, gas? as long as you just leave oh, no, my no, no. home country Sandro, a round of applause for our two debaters. It's very, very good. (laughs) You were listening to Italy's Sandro Gozzi and Denmark's Anders Vistesen on the case for and against the EU. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Remember, please take a second to rate or review this podcast wherever you found it. And if you haven't subscribed already, we're very happy to send it to you each week in a short email blast if you go to politico.eu forward slash registration and tick the EU Confidential box. Podcasting, of course, is a team effort. This simply wouldn't be possible without Christina Gonzalez, Andrew Gray, and Wei Dong Lin. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 